This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is February 9th, 2023. As I'm sure you've noticed, we're still within what you might call the hangover portion of the year. That's where we're still trying to understand what happened last year and how it might be different going forward. Today's topic, commercial real estate, a subject for which, as our first guest told us, it was a very interesting 2022, really a year of two halves. So we had a very strong start to the year in terms of commercial real estate investment and performance, a real continuation of what we'd seen in the year before. That's first time, Perspectives guest. My name's David Green Morgan. I'm the global head of real assets research based in Singapore, covering all of the different real estate markets around the world in terms of transactional investment activity, as well as the performance of real estate across multiple property types. In case you missed it, David mentioned that to understand 2023, you need to look at 2022. And to understand 2022, that's right, you have to look back to 2021 when... The start of the year was quite slow, but it it kind of really ramped up and there were very strong returns for 2021. As we came into 2022, the, the first part of the year was still quite strong. We were still sort of near record returns. That voice you may recognize, but in case you don't... Hi, I'm Will Robson. I'm Global Head of Real Estate Solutions Research at MSCI. And as he was saying, when 2022 started... It was still quite strong. We were still sort of near record returns, especially for asset classes like industrial. But as we kind of went through the initial phase of the invasion uh, through to the summer, things were starting to slow down anyway. The invasion, of course, is Russia's invasion of Ukraine in late February of last year. Inflation was starting to creep up general economic environment and outlook was weakening. And then as the inflation story took hold, you saw interest rates starting to, to, to kind of move upwards. We had the kind of mini budget debacle in the UK where interest rates really started to kind of uh, spike a bit uh, in the UK. And that, that really flipped and we start to see negative total returns in the third and fourth quarter in the UK. And those kind of, that kind of weakness is spreading around the world now. Um, so into the fourth quarter, uh, you start to see things turn and all the talk is that uh, that's going to kind of continue into the start of this year. What's interesting as we come into 2023 is that after many years of fairly consistent global performance, the, the regions and the, the major investment markets around the world have more or less been in alignment, growing uh, strongly most years. Obviously, there's been a few road bumps and speed bumps uh, along the way, such as Brexit in the in the UK and the European sovereign debt crisis, and of course COVID, which thankfully was a fairly uh, small speed bump in in the end. But what we we can we can see now is that the there's a disconnect between the markets. Europe is being affected much more greatly uh, than other parts of the world. The US and North America is just starting to adjust and Asia-Pacific, really, things have come more or less to a a bit of a standstill. We're not really seeing a weakness in performance 
and a, and a drop in values. So 2021, very strong performance for real estate. 2022 started strong, but didn't end very well. And that's especially relative to 2021. And so far, this year is not looking so great either. As Will and David wrote recently in a blog post on Real Asset Trends for 2023, quote, it is increasingly clear that commercial real estate is experiencing a downturn, end quote. Now, the last time this happened, the last time a downward move was not just a speed bump was back in 2008, the global financial crisis, which of course came up during our conversations, and of course, we shortened to GFC. We'll explain that the month-on-month and quarter-on-quarter numbers showed negative returns that are of the same magnitude as during the GFC. But one important difference? The GFC had many months and many quarters of consistent negative returns, so we haven't got into that kind of sustained downturn yet in real estate valuations. But we we don't know whether that's going to happen. I think what is different, um, I think... At the start of the GFC, there was a broad appreciation that uh, real estate markets were generally expensive and they were starting to slow down even before you had the trigger events around Lehman and, and the like, where things started to really accelerate downwards. Again, this time around, you had that kind of sense that some parts of the market were quite expensive, but the, the speed at which kind of very strong positive returns turned into very strong negative returns, especially in a market like the industrial sector, that has had such a kind of strong tailwinds behind it. That, that is quite different to the GFC. And I don't think we've seen things move that quickly and turn around so quickly until now. Back in 2008, at the height of the, the financial crisis, we didn't know which banks were solvent, uh, which banks were going to survive, how severe was the impact from country to country. So, you know, property investment came to almost a complete standstill at that point. And, th- and that's the big contrast to today is that, uh, you know, the banks are in, uh, in many cases, quite rude health. Rising interest rates helps helps banks' profitability, and so there's absolutely no, you know, concerns or worries about the integrity of the financial system. Uh, in many ways, this is this is more of a, I guess, what you'd call a traditional downturn in real estate markets. In that, as we have a higher inflation, higher interest rates, a slower economic growth, so the demand for real estate starts to slow companies cut back on the amount of space they want. Uh, investors are much more circumstepped in terms of which assets they look at. So this is a very, very different downturn to, to, the, to the GFC. Remember this line of thought about how the current situation is more of what you might call a traditional downturn. We'll get back to that in a bit, but for now, Let's stay with the GFC just a little longer so we can talk about some of the similarities between today's situation and 2008. Specifically, how the crisis affected different parts of the world at different rates and at different points in time. This same type of dynamic appears to be happening today. And it kind of springs back to what we saw in the aftermath of the GFC, where by the quickest correction in real estate activity and pricing came in North America and, and Europe. Uh, and Asia Pacific took a much longer time to adjust. There was uh, a, a 
guess, a greater reluctance to uh, acknowledge the scale of the impact that could that could affect commercial real estate, and hence the impact of the GFC kind of went on for much longer than what we saw in Europe and and North America. And it seems as though we're in a similar situation. What we've seen previously is that those markets that adjust the quickest tend to recover the quickest. And it really wasn't until sort of 2012 or 2013 that Asia really started to uh, stage uh, a recovery. So let's dig in a bit more as to why this downturn has more of the earmarks of being a more traditional downturn. Typically, real estate cycles are driven uh, quite in sync with with the, the macroeconomic picture. So when the economy is growing, you know, uh, the demand for, for space increases, rents tend to go up and values of the buildings go up and performance looks very good. And what you tend to have historically is at those times, developers build more office space, they build more shopping centers because they, they see the demand. That increase in supply tends to come in just as the economy is maybe starting to weaken a little bit. So you have an increase in space availability, but a weakening demand for that space. And so rents start to drop, value start to drop, performance dips, and then you go through the cycle again. But of course, it's the ups and downs of the of the market cycle that that makes investment possible because as uh, as values dip, you tend to get more investors coming into the market to look for opportunities. And so the ups and the downs continue. Investors are trying to understand where the price is now, uh, where where value is. And typically, everyone just kind of sits on their hands until until they kind of feel confident about where that that price is. So they need to see transactions happening to, to infer what, what where the price should be um, for these assets. And typically for real estate, when, when things start to move and sentiment changes, you tend to have a bit of a slow up in activity. And that's what we're seeing at the moment. There's the deal transaction activity that we track with RCA data is, is kind of dropped like a stone. It's very, very quiet. And so when things start to, to seize up like this, it really affects transactional activity, the, the confidence of investors to kind of move money into a fund. They're not sure whether to take money out of a fund um, at, at the kind of right valuation level. The activity slows up most um, in the smaller scale investors, smaller deals, particularly those that are more um, reliant on debt financing. There are a lot of real estate investors are dependent on, on financing um, for debt to, as part of the capital structure. So depending on the kind of financing they've got in place, uh, whether it's fixed or floating or what kind of maturity, as they come up to the end of these loans and, and look for refinancing, it depending on how much equity is left in the deal and uh, how much kind of income coverage there is there to meet loan covenants will determine how available financing is for that particular type of building. So you can imagine with interest rates increasing, the, the interest rates on real estate loans have increased the the willingness of lenders to lend at certain LTV levels, loan to value ratios, has kind of kind of become more restrained, and so less of those players are able to be active in in the market. Uh, whereas the bigger, more institutional, particularly international owners, asset owners, are kind of more able to operate during these kind of environments and tend to have a longer term view as well. On the other side, in terms of 
stopping people from sitting on their hands uh, on the selling side of things people tend to hold on to what they have unless they are forced to execute a sale um, in this kind of market environment some people are probably going to be forced to sell because of those higher interest rates the increase in debt costs uh, combined with uh, a drop off in uh, maybe rental income and a slowdown in demand for their space will make it will make the building uneconomic for them and that tends to come from distressed loans where the owners unable to get refinancing and and need to put the the asset to market or perhaps in open ended funds with with liquidity provisions and redemptions being kind of requested from funds causes a fund manager to to sell assets so those are kind of like things that force an owner to to sell and those might force the kind of crystallization of of losses that provide that evidence for valuers to then move valuations down and then as valuations move down it encourages more people to either act either buying or or selling um, at that kind of lower price point david picked up on that point one person's view is very different from another person's view and 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 they will if the price adjustment is large enough then you you will get groups of investors who will say actually i think the opportunity here is 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 good and if we can pick up the building at this price, then then I think we can, you know, make a success of it. And we've actually started to see that in the in the retail space. Ironically, kind of post-COVID, when obviously retail really suffered because none of us were allowed to go to the shops for a for a very long period of time or only to the to the grocery store to to pick up the the essentials that we we needed. So we've seen over the last 10 years retail prices really adjust quite markedly and that's at this point in time with rising interest rates because those retail prices have adjusted we've seen investors now look at retail as a potential investment opportunity with the expectation that you know they can do a a good job of repositioning of attracting tenants and generating returns whereas you know some investors have completely turned away from retail over the last 10 years and and uh, and have you know d- dismissed it uh, as an as an investment cast within real estate. As surprising as investors seeing opportunity in the retail space may be, the biggest story and in many ways the biggest unknown is the office sector. Now we've spoken before on the program about what the future of work may look like and how that might affect real estate investors, but in many ways the future it's arrived. I think most people agree that the the absolute amount of office that exists today is probably too much. Um, we don't need quite as much of that space. And the main debate is on is what is going to differentiate those those offices that will survive and continue to attract demand from tenants versus those that that won't. I think at the very least it begs questions on what what is the right type of an office building to to maintain demand from tenants uh, in this new hybrid working environment. When we were forced into the first lockdown here in Singapore, we were thinking, okay, maybe three, four months, then we'll all, all be back in the office. And what here we are three years later. And when, uh, when we do come into the office, they're obviously much quieter uh, with much fewer people around. So the impact of this uh, lack of demand, I guess, for office space 
is only just starting to play out in the investors' thinking uh, at the moment. And it is different from country to country, I would say, in Asia, where it's more typical for you to go into the office uh, and to be seen uh, and to uh, interact with your with your peers and with your uh, your team. Uh, occupancy levels are slightly higher, but it's definitely having an impact, even on a city such as Singapore, which is relatively small, very easy to to commute, quite easy to you know to to use the public transport to to come into the office. Even even here, you know, we've seen occupancy levels drop quite considerably, and this is a big uh, issue because the majority of real estate investment or holdings is within the office sector. So if you look globally at the really big asset owners, they would have 40, 50, 60% of their investments in the office sectors. Even the lowest percentage David just quoted is striking. If even nearly half of a real estate portfolio is allocated to the office sector and demand is already low, what happens with these properties as we move forward? But wait, there's more. On top of the uh, working from home challenges, we've also got the kind of uh, climate change and net zero commitments of businesses that are right across the spectrum. But all those businesses that occupy office buildings are looking for more efficient space in terms of carbon emissions. And so another aspect of this will be the, the buildings that are more able to be retrofitted to make them efficient and comply with all these uh, climate change demands will also be at the, the top end of the performance spectrum versus those that are kind of much more difficult to, to reposition. Well, there's, a, there's a huge effort around data and just understanding the, the profile of your own portfolio. So whether it's offices or retail or industrial, understanding the, the climate risk exposure across the portfolio. Um, a lot of the focus at the moment is around kind of transition risk and the the emissions intensity of, of buildings because they're associated with both the investors and the un, uh, ultimate tenants' net zero commitments and the emissions intensity of, of these buildings are. It gets quite complicated for an owner that may only have direct control over like the common parts of a building. So when you go in the building, you go in the reception area and the lift lobbies, it's typically the, the landlord that will be in control and pay the bills for energy in those areas. But a lot of the time, the tenants themselves will pay for the, the energy and be responsible for the emissions of, of the, the kind of rented out areas of the, the office building. For, for the owner, though, they, they want to understand the emissions of the whole building um, because it's those emissions that affect the, the profile of their investment, the, the whole building. And the portfolio construction process is something that all our clients are grappling with at the moment. And yes, there is still more. We're seeing a very big switch um, in terms of uh, investors very focused on the newer, the best quality buildings within a market. There was a very interesting article in the FT about a New York landlord who has basically decided to give uh, some of the buildings uh, back to the back to the bank because he's come to the conclusion that actually the demand for the some of the offices that he owns is is dropping so significantly that they're not buildings that he's uh, he's interested in in owning but i think that's a mixture of again the work from home but also 
the quality of the buildings he felt were were not the ones that tenants were demanding from a from a whole range of uh, perspectives. One of them being the environmental qualities that um, that tenants are demanding these days. And is that something um, unique to that situation, or is that is that happening elsewhere? Well, I think this is the could be the tip of the iceberg. I think many owners of properties especially if they're not the top quality buildings in a city will be starting to see that uh you know the tenants that they've had maybe for many years are beginning to take number one beginning to take less space because there's less people coming to the office are demanding higher environmental standards from the building which uh you know if it's a a building of probably more than 10 or 15 years old could be very different, difficult and expensive to retrofit that building to bring the environmental standards and up and the emissions down. And we know that uh, you know real estate is a big contributor to global emissions. And uh, you know how much, how many buildings could uh, could we be looking at here in terms of vacancy and in terms of the need to change the use of those buildings to something that. Uh, tenants uh, and investors uh, will want to uh, look at in the future. Um, yeah. How many buildings are we talking about? That seems like some important information. But David also did say something there about changing the use of these office buildings. Now, that's an idea that's been proposed in some cities, including New York City, where I live and am recording this right now. I asked him whether this is the panacea that some politicians think it is. It's not as simple as it seems, unfortunately, because converting an office building, particularly a, a big office building into a residential building, is very, typically very expensive. You know, So while it, on the one hand, you may say, well, we've got all these empty buildings in terms of office space and we've got a real shortage of housing, particularly affordable housing, let's just make the switch, put some put some bedrooms in and make it uh, an option to to absorb some of this housing demand that we've got in the majority of cities around the world are in, are in a similar predicament as New York in that they they need a big increase in affordable housing. But if you're an investor, obviously you need a return on that investment. We have seen some occasions where office buildings have been converted. They've tended to be much smaller office buildings where it's been potentially slightly easier to convert them. And, uh, and and many of them may have been residential dwellings in the past and have been converted into offices and, and are now being converted back into residential dwellings. But I'm not really aware of a major uh, office building uh, being converted into, into residential and, and it being a, a kind of a successful transformation. In that regard, but I can see why politicians and city planners would be looking at this with some interest because uh, we could be looking at a situation where you know twenty or thirty percent of office buildings in the major markets around the world become obsolete over the next fifteen or twenty years. So there is a social dimension. If the ebbing tide is beaching all boats, you need to find yourself some water, but quick. And that's when you go back to basics, or as we say in the investment biz, the fundamentals. 
when you think about uh, real estate total returns, um, you've got your income return, which is paid for by, by rent from the tenants. And then you've got capital growth. And that's driven by two main areas. One is the growth of the income, um, the willingness of tenants year on year to pay higher and higher rents and the ability of the, the landlord to kind of fill up space and, and let empty space. So that's kind of goes through to the bottom line and that gets capitalized and drives the value of a building. The other side of things is yield compression. So it's just the, the, the willingness of an investor to pay a bigger multiple on the, the rental income that's coming from a building. And that side of things has been a big driver of uh, returns for, for quite some time in real estate. And particularly even for the, the industrial sector that was so strong in the last few years, uh, there's been some significant income growth there, but there's been a lot of yield compression that's driven that. So what we're saying is in, in the kind of market reversal where capital values start to, to fall and the, the contribution from yield compression turns negative, to get a decent uh, total return, you've got to look for other ways to push the value of the asset. And that's all around the fundamental side. So whether that is looking for types of buildings or locations where we expect rents to grow or doing something physical to the building to raise the rental value of the building, um, that's going to be more and more important going forward. Will continued. We've looked historically around the kind of factors that perform well or badly uh, in the early stages of a downturn and then through a recovery. And so two factors that are particularly interesting are, are yield and also leasing profile, which we've calculated as a, as a, a 50-50 mix of occupancy and remaining lease term. So how, how many years of income have you got left on the rental contract? And you find that leasing profile is something that performs very well during a, a risk-off phase where, where there's a flight to safety. People look for kind of more secure and longer income profiles uh, and they tend to get bid up in price and perform well. As you come out the other side and the economy starts to perform better and rents start rising, actually that leasing profile uh, factor starts to, to weaken in performance and actually sometimes turns negative. When rents are growing fast, you want short income and some vacancy so that you can kind of get into that opportunity and rent out space in a rising market. And yield is a similar one. So uh, yield, high yielding properties tend to be in less well-located areas, um, less quality assets. The yield factor tends to perform pretty well over the whole cycle. But during a, a downturn, there's a flight to safety away from those kind of higher yielding properties. And so they tend to underperform. So um, looking at the exposure of a fund to these kind of factors or, or indeed the exposure of individual assets to these kind of factors can help in understanding how to position or enter these opportunities or exit them at different phases of the market cycle. That's all for this week. A big thank you from Joe, Phil, and me to David and Will, and of course to all of you for listening. On our next episode, we'll take a look at how the investment markets have changed since the Russians invaded Ukraine last year. We'll do so with a panel of MSCI experts across asset classes and different parts of the world. Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe.